Let's read God's word, John 2, verses 12 through 25. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon, pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and indeed he, and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us by your spirit, that you might reveal the wonders of your glory, that we too might see and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life through your name. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power. And we thank you for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There's nothing better than a good plot twist. In The Empire Strikes Back, we learn that Darth Vader was Luke's father the whole time. And that Princess Leia was his sister. Hashtag awkward. In The Planet of the Apes, we learn that Charlton Heston was on Earth the whole time. In The Usual Suspects, we learn that Kevin Spacey was Kaiser Soze the whole time. In The Sixth Sense, we learn that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. And in Fight Club, we learn that Edward Norton was punching himself the whole time. Plot twists abound in novels by Agatha Christie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and even in the novels of J.K. Rowling. You will find twists and turns on Amazon Prime, on Netflix, ESPN, Fox News, CNN, A&E, TLC, and even HGTV where I still can't believe those people from Cleveland bought the second house. You always buy the third house. 
That house had a terrible backyard, and it was $10,000 over their budget. What were they thinking? What you might not know is that the Bible is filled with plot twists, twists and turns that reveal the wisdom of God our Savior. In the Bible, barren women give birth to prophets and priests and kings. And in the case of Mary, a virgin woman gave birth to all three. In the Bible, angels from on high deliver messages of hope. Tiny armies defeat great nations in battle. Sick people are healed. Lost people are found. The rich become poor, and the poor become rich. Jacob marries Rachel after accidentally marrying her sister. Queen Esther saves the Jews after turning the tables on the wicked Prince Haman and the murderous Saul. Sees the risen Christ and becomes the great Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. In the Bible, sometimes lambs become lions, and sometimes lions become lambs. That's essentially what we see in our passage this morning. In one of the great plot twists in all of the Bible, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who quietly and secretly took control of a wedding reception, becomes Jesus, the Lion of God who loudly and boldly takes control of the temple. In fact, if these two stories didn't take place in the same chapter, in the same book, you might find yourself wondering, is this the same person? Is this Jesus, the same Jesus, who turned water into wine? Is Jesus the Lord of the wine, the Lord of joy and laughter and celebration? Or is Jesus the Lord of the whip? The Lord of anger and anguish and indignation. Could he really be both at the same time? Should we be both? At the same time, how do we reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable portraits of Jesus? How does the lamb show us the lion? How does the lion show us the lamb? These are some of the questions we'll be asking this morning as we look at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. If you're taking notes today, we're going to break this uh, story down into two main sections. First, in the opening verses, we'll talk about the problems of the prophet. And then, in the closing verses, we'll talk about the promises of the prophet. The problems of the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T... And the promises of the prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, which is some next level outlining, if I do say so myself. The problems of the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, the promises of the prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. We begin with the problems of the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. Why did Jesus react so strongly against the merchants and the money changers in the temple? Let's see, verse 13. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. All right, let's set the stage. Jesus is now 30 years old. In chapter 1, he called his first five disciples, his soon-to-be best friend John, Peter and Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel, who famously or perhaps infamously asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In the opening verses of chapter 2, we read about Jesus' very first miraculous sign in order to demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of the feast and that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of laughter and joy and celebration. Jesus turned approximately 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of wine. The water of purification became the wine of of celebration and a dishonorable groom a man who was shamed for running out of wine became an honorable groom a groom who saved the best for last because of jesus who always saves the best for last who jesus did for him Now, after a brief visit to Capernaum, Jesus and his growing band of disciples find themselves in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was one of three pilgrim feasts, the others being the the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Feast of Pentecost, Sukkot and Shavuot, which I like better because those two names rhyme. Now, according to the Old Testament, every male Jew who lived within reasonable walking distance of Jerusalem would go there to celebrate the Passover with the people of God every single year. It was required by law for them to celebrate the Passover feast. They would pray, they would offer sacrifices, and they would remember God's grace to his people. Specifically, the occasion of the very first Passover in the book of Exodus, where God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through the death of an innocent lamb. A lamb whose blood protected them from the angel of death. A a lamb whose blood redeemed them from the curse of God against all the firstborn in Egypt. So Jesus, his small band of disciples, are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, along with hundreds of thousands of other people who have also come to Jerusalem to celebrate alongside them. Will Jesus turn water into wine again? Will he now, on this grand stage, start healing the sick and perhaps even raising the dead? Or will he start a riot by directly challenging the most important people in the city of Jerusalem at the most important, pivotal time of the year? As Jesus approached the outer court of the temple, the, the court of the Gentiles, he found merchants and money, and money changers, buyers and sellers of 
religious goods and services. According to Jesus, they had turned his heavenly father's house into a house of trade. The sanctuary of God had become the marketplace of man. Jesus was angry. He was filled with righteous indignation. And so he fastened a whip out of cords and he used that whip to drive the merchants and the money changers out of the temple. He overturned their their tables. He chased away their animals. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. The question is why? Why did he do this? Why was he so angry? Why was he so offended? Well, let me give you three answers to that question. Three problems with profit. Three things that turned the Lamb of God into the Lion of Judah. The first problem with profit is the problem of exploitation. These merchants and money changers were exploiting the people of God. The merchants were selling pre-approved sacrificial animals to people who needed them if they wanted to participate in the Passover feast. Now imagine this. Imagine if you came to church next week where we serve the the Lord's Supper, and I said, hey, we're going to do something a little bit different this year. If you want to participate in the Lord's Supper, you are going to have to buy your own bread and wine before you come to the table. This is special bread, five-point Calvinist bread, uh, pre-approved by the session. This is a special uh, Presbyterian wine, non-alcoholic Presbyterian wine, which I know is a little bit of an oxymoron, but that's what we do. And so you can't just come. You have to pay in order to have communion with God. You have to pay in order to receive this means uh, of grace. We take all major credit cards, Apple Pay, Venmo, of course, cold hard cash. The choice is up to you. The priests in this situation actually sold franchises to different merchants, giving them the exclusive right to sell ceremonially clean animals to the pilgrims who had come to the city. It was a complete and total scam. This would have made the most extreme prosperity gospel preachers blush with the sheer audacity of what they were doing to the people. Now, the money changers had a similar arrangement with the priests. Pilgrims had to pay a special temple tax when they came to the temple. Hey, no problem, right? Just reach into your pocket, grab a few coins, put in the coffers, you're done. Well, not so fast. You see, the people working at the temple only took special silver coins, and you guessed it, those coins could only be purchased at the temple with an exorbitant exchange rate, which made the money changers very, very wealthy. All of this was approved by the clergy. And Jesus, the good shepherd, saw that his people were being fleeced. And he was angry about it. God gets angry when we exploit people. God gets angry when we take advantage of people. God doesn't hate all merchants, but he does hate greed. 
He hates crony capitalism. He hates insider trading. He hates payday lending and loan sharking. When Jesus sees people being scammed and cheated, especially in God's house, in God's name, he gets very angry and he has every right to be angry. The church is a place where we serve people who can't serve themselves. The church is a place where we help people who cannot help themselves. Church isn't about profit. It's about the prophet, Jesus Christ, who came to freely give his life on the cross, not in exchange for our money or our good works or anything that we would bring to him, simply by grace, simply given to everyone who believes. Salvation is a gift from God. That's the first problem with profit, exploitation. The second problem with profit is the problem of exclusion. The merchants and the money changers were excluding the Gentiles. This scene takes place in the court of the Gentiles. What's the court of the Gentiles? I'm glad you asked. Because God loves outsiders, because God loves seekers, because God loves sinners, because he loves lost people and hurting people and broken people, he established a special area of the temple, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, where spiritual outsiders could come and pray. Where Gentile sinners People who weren't on the inside could come and taste and see that God is good. Well, did it work? Could the Gentiles go there and pray? Could they reflect on the glory and grace of God? Well, in theory they could, but in practice they absolutely could not. In practice, the court of the Gentiles was filled with bartering and haggling. The court of the Gentiles was, was filled with the sights and the sounds and the smells of, of birds and animals, oxen and lambs and, and pigeons. Imagine trying to hold a, a prayer meeting at the 50-yard line of, of the Super Bowl during the halftime show. It would be next to impossible to do that because there's so much clamor and there's so much chaos going on all around you. Do you see why Jesus is angry? In Mark's account of this same uh, cleansing of the temple, Jesus is reportedly said, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Do you understand what these merchants and money sellers with the full approval and authority of the priests were doing to God's people? What he was doing to the Gentiles? He, they were robbing God by excluding them. They were robbing God by excluding the outsiders. They were robbing him of his glory. They were robbing him by preventing people who he had purchased by his blood from coming to him. In prayer. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was a, supposed to be a place where outsiders could become insiders. What happened? 
It didn't begin that way. Originally, the Gentiles could go there, and, and they could pray. I think here's what happened, and it can happen to us. It's a danger. The people in the ancient world, the first century, had lost their evangelistic zeal. They lost their heart for the nations. They excluded the very people that God wants to include in the kingdom of God. Earlier, Pastor David mentioned all the the flags that we see around our sanctuary today. Why do we put these flags up around our sanctuary? Because we still believe that God's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. We still believe that the church is a place where sinners become saints. We still believe that the church is a place for backsliders and strugglers. We still believe that the church is a house of prayer for people who don't have it all figured out, but who are willing to desperately cry out to the God who does. It is absolutely the most natural thing in the world to include people who are just like us. That is easy to do. It is the most supernatural thing in the world to include people who are nothing at all like us. Which is what Jesus did when he adopted us into his family. We who were nothing like him, (laughs) nothing like him, aside from also having a human nature, are slowly and surely becoming something like him because the gospel is about inclusion and embrace. Now, not not blind affirmation. Jesus will challenge some of your most deeply held assumptions when you come to him in faith. He will call you out when, you're sin- when you sin. He will overturn some tables in your life that need to be overturned. But if you believe in Jesus, he will do so as your Savior. He will do so as your friend. He is a friend of sinners. He's a friend of Gentiles. The third problem with prophet is the problem of distraction. The merchants and the money changers were distracting the people. Now, here's what was supposed to happen. People would take a goat and get a lamb. They would take the lamb. They would give it to the priest. The priest would sacrifice that animal, and the person would watch. They would see that animal dying on the altar, and they would have a time to think and reflect. Why is this animal dying? This spotless lamb has committed no sin. This spotless lamb has done nothing wrong. And yet this lamb is dying in my place. It should be me lying on that altar. If this was purely a matter of justice, if this is purely a matter of God uh, creating a reckoning for sin, it should be me dying for my sins. But that's not what was happening. We would be forced to think that God is holy, that God is just, that God is merciful, that God was putting our sin on someone else's shoulders, but it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. Why? Pastor Tim Keller put it like this in his commentary on these verses. He writes, the sacrificial system, though very mysterious, was like the gospel because the sacrificial system, on the one hand, was very humbling. 
It said to you, do you, not, do you know what? You can't just go into God. There has to be punishment. There has to be judgment. And yet, on the other hand, it was also joyous. Because it said, there is a provision for you. There is a way for you to be spared. By throwing the merchants and the money changers out of the temple, Jesus is saying there is a whole new way of relating to God. Before, this was a market. Now, it's a temple once again. Before, you were approaching God in a very mechanical, transactional way. But now you can approach God in a very personal, in a very relational way. Before, you brought the sacrifices to God. Now, Jesus is saying, I am the sacrifice, sacrificed for you. Before, you had a works-based relationship with God. And now, you have an entirely grace-based, faith-based relationship with God. Before, you tried to pay for your blessings with your good works. You tried to pay by being a good husband or a good father or a good mother or a good wife. You tried to be an obedient child or a good citizen or a, a good church member, a generous giver. Now you can embrace Jesus who paid it all. Now because the merchants and the money changers are gone and the temple has been cleansed, you can follow him not to earn his blessings, but to enjoy the blessings that he has earned for you. That's a completely different way of relating to God. It's personal. It's intimate. There's real love and gratitude in your heart because God's grace is completely free. Was any of that happening in the temple? Were the people reflecting on that or thinking about that at all? The answer is probably not. And we know that because of Jesus' reaction to what was happening there. Jesus got angry. He said, get these merchants and these money changers out of the temple. They're distracting my people from how God's grace actually works. And so the question that this poses to us as God's people living 2,000 years after Jesus cleansed the temple is, what is distracting us from Jesus? What is distracting you from feeling on a deep, visceral level your need for God's grace? Well, I can only speak for myself, but for me, the, the list is endless. I, like many of you, have digital distractions, phones and emails and texts and everything beeping and binging all day long in my life, telling me that someone needs to talk to me or I need to talk to someone else. I have health concerns in my family, very distracting, very concerning to me. That's sort of pulling my mind away from Jesus and the gospel I have distractions by all the crazy things that are happening in the world. Oh, goodness, you know, turn on the news. <laughs> the, the, I, what do I need, more do I need to say than a Chinese spy balloon? There's a Chinese spy balloon, which we shot down because apparently it was interfering with our own spy balloons that the CIA sent up there earlier, but that's another story. It's very concerning to me. Perhaps it's concerning to you. Is it distracting you from Jesus and his kingdom? Is it making you worry 
And is that worry overcoming the clear, simple truth that Jesus is who he said that he is? That he is gracious and merciful and good. Maybe you're a student and you're distracted by grades. Maybe you're distracted by uh, things that are happening at work, marriage problems. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been thinking the whole time about the Super Bowl. And, uh, hey, who's going to win? Chiefs or the Eagles or what are we going to do at the party later? Listen, I get it. I get it. Even in the church, we often give people so many activities to do (laughs) that people in the church are distracted like Martha with much serving when we should be like Mary taking the time to sit at the Savior's feet. The merchants and the money changers were exploiting people, they were excluding the Gentiles, and they were distracting people. In essence, they were keeping people from seeing Jesus. And so when Jesus came, instead of recognizing him, instead of saying, Jesus, we felt your power, we felt your authority, they said, who are you? Who gave you authority to do this? Show us a sign. Give us some indication that the power that we sense coming out of you is real and authentic. That's where we're going next. We'll close with the promises of the prophet, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Three quick promises of our prophet Jesus Christ. The first promise is this. I am the temple. So they're asking him, who gave you authority over the temple, Jesus? Who gave you the right to rearrange the furniture? Who gave you the right to throw out these pre-approved religious vendors that we have established in this building? And he answered, not only do I have authority over the temple, I am the temple. In other words, I am the place where heaven and earth meet. They thought, and rightly so at that time, you go to the temple to meet with God. Jesus is saying, if you want to meet with God, you have to come to me. He'll say something very similar in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I am the temple of God. I am the place where heaven and earth meet. I am the place where you will discover truths that are greater than anything that you could discover on this earth. I am the place that will satisfy your deepest longings for transcendent beauty and truth and joy. It is me. You come here three times a year to make sacrifices, once a year to celebrate the Passover feast. I am the sacrifice. Remember chapter 1? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world. Jesus is saying, no more sacrifices, no more lambs, no more temple, no more altar, no more priests. It is finished. Believe in me and you will be saved. If you want a relationship with God, the real God, not a God of your own imagination, not a God of your own making, but the true and living God. If you want forgiveness, if you want God to answer your prayers, if you, you have to come to the temple, the true temple, Jesus Christ. The second promise is you're going to destroy the temple. You're going to kill me. You're going to crucify me. You're going to reject me. You're going to tear down the temple, which is my body. And they did. Three years later, they did. And 2,000 years later, we still do. We, in effect, crucify Jesus over and over again when we sin. We, in effect, reject Jesus over and over when we sin. Because we cannot bear the cost of discipleship, because we cannot bear the scorn of the world, uh, because we are weak, because we are faulty, we participate once again in the death of our Savior. What are some ways that you're destroying the temple that is His body? I think one of the ways that we destroy it is by simply neglecting it. You know, if you have a building, a house or an office building or something, a church that you just leave alone and you never go there and you never participate, well, eventually the, the earth will reclaim the building. Are you destroying the temple by neglecting your relationship with God? Are you destroying the temple by neglecting the privilege of participating in the body of Christ, the church? The third promise is this. I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days. I'm going to rise again. Death cannot defeat me. Satan cannot defeat me. I am going to die, but I will not stay dead. And because of that, because of the resurrection, there is hope. There's hope for exploiters, and there's hope for people who have been exploited. There's hope for excluders and for people who have been excluded. There's hope for distractors and there's hope for people who have been distracted. Because Jesus is the true temple, we can take our stand against injustice and sin. No more exploitation. We can take our stand with the outsiders no more exclusion. We can take our stand with Jesus even as we marvel at His grace. No more distractions. Jesus changes everything. He wants to come into our lives. He wants to overturn some tables. He wants to shatter some things that we're doing, things that are pulling us away from a relationship with Him, but He, he does it because He loves us. And he wants us to see that it's all about him. He is the house of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, our Savior.
Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your zeal. We thank you for your passion and your compassion for your people. Oh, Lord God, we lament all the ways in which we distract people from your kingdom and your glory. We repent over the way that we exploit and take advantage of other people. We lament over the very fact that we exclude the very people that you have come to embrace. Oh, Lord God, hollow us out, cleanse us from all sin, that we might be living temples, Lord God, filled with your Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.